Hello, and welcome to Asbury Methodist Church's podcast. My name is Forrest Divini. I am the lead pastor at Asbury. We hope that this podcast will enrich your walk with Christ, increase your knowledge of the Bible, and we hope it will be at least a little bit entertaining as we go. Now, I'm just back from spending several days in Temple, Texas, at the annual, uh, well, I guess the first annual gathering of the Mid-Texas Conference clergy. Um, it's the Mid-Texas Conference of the Global Methodist Church. And um, I have spent probably my entire life, yeah, yeah, my entire life, because, you know, Dad's a, a Methodist pastor. I've spent my entire life around Methodist clergy. I, I don't remember a single year of my life where I did not, in some fashion, attend a gathering of Methodist clergy, uh, annual conferences and things like that in particular. I have never been to a gathering of Methodist clergy where we spent this much time talking about Jesus, this much time worshiping genuinely with all our heart and soul, uh, this much time just enjoying each other's company and enjoying the presence of God. Um, it's unprecedented in our lifetimes. It's unprecedented in living memory for Methodist clergy to be at an event that spirit-filled and that holy. Uh, and all I'm just saying that because I'm excited and it's boiling over and I have to say it. Um, God is on the move and God is doing exciting things and, and we should be incredibly excited and filled with joy and anticipation for uh, the future of the Methodist movement uh, in ways that I don't think we've been able to be excited before. Uh, I, I spent my whole professional life up till March of this year in the United Methodist Church. I've gone to plenty of clergy gatherings. None of them were like this. None of them involved actually talking about Jesus. Usually the preachers at those gatherings didn't really talk about Jesus all that much. They might talk about improving your metrics or uh, whatever book the speaker happened to be reading or happened to have written. Uh, often those books didn't really talk about Jesus all that much either. Um, and quite often those gatherings were really much more about the business side of church, the administrative side of church making sure we crossed all our T's and dotted all our I's and got all the votes done exactly right. And it was such a joy and a, and a refreshing thing to be around a bunch of Methodist clergy who were just there to worship and talk about Jesus. And we got the business part done in like two minutes. And then we got on to the real work of the church, which is worshiping God and telling people about him. And so that was awesome. Um, and again, all that to say, you know, if you're, if you're a part of our church, if you're part of another Global Methodist Church who's listening, and be excited because God is going to do some incredible things. And that's just, it's good news all around. You can also be excited because if you're following along in our Bible reading plan, we are just about done with Leviticus. I'm recording this on Tuesday, August the 8th. I believe tomorrow morning, Wednesday, I believe that is the last day in Leviticus. Then we move on to Numbers. And I'll admit that Numbers is not exactly the most exciting book of the Bible. But it's a lot better than Leviticus, isn't it? 
I've been preaching on Leviticus on Sunday now for like three straight weeks, and it's, let me tell you, it is not an easy book to preach on. Um, it's important, and I want you, I want you to get to the point where you can begin to see how the book of Leviticus foreshadows everything that Jesus is going to do, and I want you to get to the point where you can, where you can see the goodness of the moral teaching laid out in Leviticus. Because remember, Jesus affirms the moral teaching of the Old Testament, but he removes its penalties for violating the moral teaching. So the moral teaching of the Old Testament and of Leviticus is, is still the moral standard to which we are held. It's just that the consequences for violating that standard have been removed, um, or I should say changed. So it is important to read these books, but they're hard to read. And now we go on to Numbers. Numbers is called Numbers because it, well, it has lots of numbers in it. Uh, the people who named these books were not always very creative. The book of Numbers deals with the journey from Mount Sinai to the Promised Land. So up to this point, the second half of Exodus and all the book of Leviticus, they've been camped at Mount Sinai. Now, they camp at Sinai for about two years before they go to, uh, to the promised land. And we know this because the first verse of Numbers literally says, The Lord spoke to Moses in the wilderness of Sinai in the tent of meeting on the first day of the second month in the second year after they had come out of the land of Egypt. Okay, so, it's been two years. And now God says, okay, it's time to go. Now, the first ten chapters of Numbers are literally just the preparations for going to the Promised Land. And what I'll say to you here is, um, don't, don't take the numbers of people listed in here literally. Now, is it possible that they are the literal, actual numbers? Well, sure. Anything is possible. That God could certainly have provided for all these people in the wilderness. He's God. However, uh, this is a... Uh, put it this way. Archaeologists have a fairly good idea of what the total population of Egypt and the Middle East was around this time period. Um, and these numbers do not fit. Uh, if these numbers were accurate, the line of Israelites marching through the desert would be like 1,800 miles long. It's probably not accurate. And that's okay. They don't need to be accurate. Numbers in the Bible are highly symbolic. I am not an expert on the symbolism of numbers. And so I can't sit here and give you a detailed explanation of what all the symbolism could be. I can tell you that there is probably <clears throat> something to the effect of... Um, using these numbers to symbolically identify um, multiple generations of the people of Israel. 
right? So not just the ones who are alive during the wandering in the wilderness, but their descendants and their immediate ancestors, basically a way of including all the generations of Israel in what's about to happen. Because this is this story is part of their identity. And so I think that's probably what's going on there with these massive numbers. Um, but you will see all throughout the Old Testament numbers that are looked at with enormous skepticism by most archaeologists and most historians. Now, often when historians and archaeologists treat biblical information with skepticism, uh, I disagree with them. I don't think they have much reason to. Um, so you'll see historians and archaeologists that, who talk about how the entire Exodus story, the whole bit about wandering in the wilderness and the conquest of Canaan in the book of Joshua, you'll see them dismissing all of that as myth. And I don't think there's really any grounds to do so. The only reason they do that is because they don't have any archaeological evidence of that. Um, but another way of saying that is they haven't found that evidence yet. I suspect one day they will. Um, you know, the absence of evidence doesn't prove anything. Uh, in this case, though, when you're talking about the numbers that are given for things in the Old Testament, so the numbers here uh, for the size of the population of the people of Israel, the numbers in other books that are given for the size of the armies which go into battle, um, they're probably right to be skeptical. One of the reasons we can say that is um, in every culture's documents that tell of you know battles and, and the size of cities and all of that, we see enormously inflated numbers. Um, you know, they'll, they'll list the population of one of their cities as being, you know, several hundred thousand people. Well, we, the, the issue is, of course, that we found a lot of those cities and we know that they weren't holding several hundred thousand people. Um, we have a pretty good estimate of, again, we have a pretty good estimate of the population size of different parts of the earth at different times, and so we can also be pretty sure that when they talk about armies numbering in the hundreds of thousands, they probably weren't that big. Famously, the, the Persian army that was invade, that invaded Greece and uh, was stopped at the Battle of Thermopylae by the Spartans was, was said to number several million, and we know that that's not true. It was probably a couple hundred thousand. It would have been a very large army. Persia could have fielded several hundred thousand soldiers at once. But it wasn't in the millions. So these numbers probably inflated. Don't ask me how many people there actually were. I don't know. But you've also got to think, you know, um, they have had 400 years... 400 years to grow from a family of 12 brothers and their wives. There's not really anybody else who's been added to this group, okay? Um, they have not been, you know, growing by immigration or anything like that. The only people who would have become part of this would be people, you know, born to those families. Now, it's not inconceivable that in 400 years, those families could have um, grown to over 600,000 people. 
minus the Levites. But it's also unlikely. Between high infant mortality, remember they're, they're slaves in Egypt, so, um, you know, infant mortality is high for everyone at the time. It's probably higher for the slaves. The overall mortality rate probably higher for slaves. Um, So, you know, take all these numbers with a grain of salt and don't worry about them too much. These first two chapters in Numbers, they are essentially determining the size of their military force. And they're going to organize their marching order in such a way that the fighters are going to be on the outside. This is interesting because in later books, um, Israelite kings are going to get in trouble for taking a census like this and trying to count all their fighting forces. And... And there's two elements here. The first is sometimes, sometimes God requires us to simply trust in him and not worry about the problems. Other times, God expects us to take responsibility for our own well-being. That's an important lesson, right? There are times when um, God's going to say to us, no, 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 don't worry about it. Don't try and solve your own problems. I'm going to work this out for you. And there are other times when God says, you're on your own. I want you to figure this out. And it's, it can be difficult to discern when that is the case. But nonetheless, that is a responsibility that we have, is to, to spend enough time in prayer, enough time reading scripture, enough time um, patiently meditating on God's presence and his word to be able to make those sorts of difficult discernments. There's another aspect to this story, though, which is that in later books, kings get in trouble when they decide on their own initiative to take a census and determine the size of their available military forces. In Numbers, God initiates the census. So again, kind of a key difference. Worth noting, because this throws some people off. Right? There's, so we talk about the 12 tribes of Israel. Keen observers will have realized there's actually 13. Way back at the end of Genesis, what does Jacob do? He, he names both of Joseph's sons as his successors. So, there is no tribe of Joseph, right? I don't know if you've noticed that before, but Joseph is one of the 12 sons of Jacob, and there is no tribe of Joseph. Instead, each of his sons, Manasseh and Ephraim, they get their own tribes. That should make 13 tribes, right? The tribe of Levi is essentially the missing 13th tribe. They're a special case. Unlike the other tribes, they do not, you know, all the other tribes get a, get a specific portion of Israel that they inherit and they live there, and that's their tribal land. Excuse me. The tribe of Levi, they get no tribal land. They don't have that assigned to them. They'll have uh, towns and villages and cities that are that belong to the Levites, but they are scattered 
throughout the full territory of Israel. And that's because the tribe of Levi are the priests. They are the spiritual leaders. They are the ones responsible for keeping the people connected to God. So, they don't receive a specific tribal inheritance. They don't have specific land. They live everywhere, and they rely on the other tribes to keep them supplied with food and land and property and all of that. So yes, there are technically 13 tribes, but Levi is like this sort of hidden shadow tribe that, that mixes with all the others. So, the first 10 chapters... Oh, let's talk about this test for adultery in chapter 5. This is one of the most interesting... Well, maybe not interesting. It's, it's an, we got to talk about it. So, chapter 5, verse 11. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel. If any man's wife goes astray and breaks faith with him, if a man lies with her sexually and it is hidden from the eyes of her husband and she is undetected, though she has defiled herself, and there is no witness against her, since she was not taken in the act, and if the spirit of jealousy comes over him and he is jealous of his wife who has defiled herself, or if the spirit of jealousy comes over him and he is jealous of his wife, though she has not defiled herself, then the man shall bring his wife to the priest and bring the offering required of her, a tenth of an ephah of barley flour. He shall pour no oil on it and put no frankincense on it, for it is a grain offering of jealousy, a grain offering of remembrance, bringing iniquity to remembrance. And the priest shall bring her near, and set her before the Lord, and the priest shall take holy water in an earthenware vessel, and take some of the dust that is on the floor of the tabernacle, and put it into the water. And the priest shall set the woman before the Lord, and unbind the hair of the woman's head, and place in her hands the grain offering of remembrance, which is the grain offering of jealousy. And in his hand the priest shall have the water of bitterness that brings the curse. Then the priest shall make her take an oath, saying, If no man has lain with you, and if you have not turned aside to uncleanness while you were under your husband's authority, be free from this water of bitterness that brings the curse. But if you have gone astray, though you were under your husband's authority, and if you have defiled yourself and some other man other than your husband has lain with you, then let the priest make the woman take the oath of the curse and say to the woman, the Lord make you a curse and an oath among your people. And when the Lord makes your thigh fall away and your body swell, may this water that brings the curse pass into your bowels and make your womb swell and your thigh fall away. And the woman shall say, Amen, Amen. Then the priest shall write these curses in the book and wash them off in the water of bitterness. And he shall make the woman drink the water of bitterness that brings the curse. And the water that brings the curse shall enter into her and cause bitter pain. And the priest shall take the grain offering of jealousy out of the woman's hand, and shall wave the grain offering before the Lord, and bring it to the altar. And the priest shall take a handful of the grain offering as its memorial portion, and burn it on the altar, and afterward shall make the woman drink the water. And when he has made her drink the water, then, if she has defiled herself and has broken faith with her husband, the water that brings the curse shall enter into her and cause bitter pain, and her womb shall swell, and her thigh shall fall away, and the woman shall become a curse among her people." But if the woman has not defiled herself and is clean, then she shall be free and shall conceive children. What's going on here? 
will understand that you know this is talking about so in the intro right it talks about um, a husband who is jealous of his wife because she has defiled herself or a husband who's got jealousy over his wife even though she has not defiled herself so essentially you're dealing with a husband who suspects that his wife has been unfaithful okay so this is not the same thing that you do if you caught them in the act of adultery you suspect she's been unfaithful quite likely because she is pregnant and he thinks that the baby's not his or or he simply is suspicious of her now anyone who's been married I think understands that this happens from time to time right um, not actual affairs but but it's not uncommon to find yourself um, if not outright suspicious then perhaps a, a tiny bit jealous of the relationship your spouse has with another person maybe they have a co-worker who they um, think really highly of and go to, to for advice a lot and you get a little jealous of that relationship or something along those lines it's not out of the ordinary and so there does need to be something here to deal with it. And you might wonder, well, what about the man? Why are we only punishing the woman here? Well, there's a, a couple things to bear in mind. The, the first is, um, in this culture, the, the first priority would be determining which man has responsibility for raising a child with her if she is indeed pregnant. Um, the other bit here is that presumably, presumably, if she is guilty, and this test proves that she is guilty, you would you would then go and, and she would then identify the man, and then he would suffer the punishment for adultery with her. The implication of all this, by the way, is that this particular punishment, you know, if she is guilty, is going to render her um, it's going to render her sterile. It's not clear if she's pregnant when, when they perform this ritual, if it would um, kill the baby. I think that quite unlikely. But it is implied that she will not be able to bear future children if, if she undergoes this test and is found guilty. This also seems like the sort of thing that would be... Um, used in extreme cases, right? Presumably, given the massive consequences of it, um, a woman who's been caught in adultery might admit her crime before it gets to this point. Now, a lot of people read this and think, this seems barbaric, right? And I remember I had, I had classmates in seminary who were angered by this because, in their eyes, it's just a silly ritual, and it's no way to prove whether or not someone has actually done something. Um, I reject that. I reject that. I don't think God would have told his people to do this if he didn't plan to follow through. If he didn't plan to actually reveal the truth in this way to his people. Um, you remember, bear in mind, these people do not have any sort of scientific way of proving anything else, right? If she's pregnant and the husband suspects it's not his, they don't have a DNA test. Um, and since they're all technically related, you the, the baby's not going to come out looking so different from one of them that they can't just say, oh, well, this isn't your kid. So they've got to have something else to determine this. 
we, of course, have no record of this ritual ever being actually performed. It doesn't mean it wasn't. Um, and it doesn't mean that there's no punishment involved for the man, in this case, if it's found guilty. Um, right? Some people will point to the final verse here in verse 31 where it says, The man shall be free from iniquity, but the woman shall bear her iniquity. But that's talking actually about the husband, okay, who, who initiates the test. Um, so just a bizarre kind of ritual in there, but it's one of those things that would have been necessary for them and isn't necessary for us anymore. Um, and again, we're not really sure how... It, it's never referenced as far as I know, anywhere else in the Bible. Which means if it was performed, and it might have been, you know, long, there's a long period of history here where these laws are enforced, it wasn't exactly common. It was, seems like it's kind of like a tool of last resort. So they celebrate the Passover, and then they leave. And then they immediately begin to complain in chapter 11. And we will talk about that next week. Until then, God bless.